in Avelos is of course a concept of Aninos. To be an Onain is to be one of the Zion Krovim and you're in a period of time in which you're not supposed to be consoled, you're not supposed to make brachos, you're not supposed to learn Torah, you're just in another world. And I feel like because of the day that we have until the actual Levaya, we're not halachic onanim, but philosophically we are onanim. It's not yet the time for hespedim. It's not yet the time for consolation. On the other hand, this is an important moment. Whether it really is the end of an era, as I think, as other people have been saying, tomorrow the eyes of the entire state of Israel will be on our yeshiva, and to a certain extent the eyes of the whole entire world Jewish community will be on our yeshiva. We who were Zoha to, to either be Talmidim, or even if it's only to share a base medrash with a person the likes of whom we'll probably never see again, have an additional obligation, an additional burden to share and to be part of it. And we thought without, without any great plan about who will say what and for how long and on what themes, not to give Hespedim, but to share ideas, to share character traits, to share things that we can each hold on to for tomorrow and for beyond. So it makes sense to start with Rav Ryan, who not surprisingly desperately doesn't want to speak, but who obviously knew of Lifting the longest, not embarrassed to say I assume was the closest to him, and therefore, you know, needs to and should say something. the Shurim and heard the things between the lines in addition to Rav Lutzin's Torah everybody said who the person was and I think that uh, despite the fact that probably you read a lot, you've heard a lot and people came to the yeshiva because there was this Gadol Rav Lichtenstein who stood for Haritzion and Haritzion stood for him um, unfortunately there are very few people here who knew him personally but even from your year or two or three or whatever time you had here you had the opportunity to see certain traits and certain things that I'm going to try to, to, to mention he was known that he was a, a giant in Torah no. you know, brilliant insightful that was who he was I remember when uh, I was in the Shir, my first year at YU, so I didn't know who he was. YU, when you came to YU, you were uh, you put into what Shir, whatever Shir they put you into. I had some friends in the office who recommended that I should go. Other people went to second year or third year Shir. I went to the first year Shir of Lokansin. And I remember the intensity. I remember the sheer panic that students had there not because of him but because of who he was he was just he was just a giant he took the learning seriously he never got upset he never yelled he never had to be afraid of being in the sheer at the same time the feeling of awe was unbelievable for me it was the first time I'd uh, 
you know, had Mari McComas, who went to high school, which is a very great rebame, who used to feed us what the Mepharshim say. You'd write it down on the side of your if you want it. There's no, there was no preparation, there was no nothing. You come there and right away you say, buy a Shas and buy a, uh, a Rambam, give out Mirkoros, you start, you prepare, and then you go to the Shear, and the Shear would be tremendous. It was a Shear every single day. There was no of these twice a week, three times a week, four weeks. It was Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It was tremendous. It was um, really, really special. But it wasn't only the Torah. He had a point every week of giving hashkafa. He would give direction. He would talk about what Torah was about and what Yadus was about. And very often was it, I mean, it was always at a high level, but it was something that said beyond the actual learning, what the learning is supposed to do for you and what you're supposed to do with the learning. That's memory then. And I was in the Shear, and later on I went through YU when I was in the Kolel, and it was a similar type of situation. Then we went our ways. I remember one of the Hashkaf of Shirim. Uh, I'm in Chinuch because of Rav Lechenstein. He talked about Rav... What? <laughs> talk about what Rabbi Bazak mentioned about everybody's responsibility and everybody's caring and everybody's ability to impact in Kal Yisrael and if you could you should you should try to be involved like I credit him for that at the time I didn't know what was going to happen happened later on through the coal and things like that but it's because of him that's what I'm looking to see you were able to see Rav Lichtenstein as a, an elderly person. I mean, he used to run. He used to run with his Gemara. You, you couldn't keep up. When he would run to the Medrash with this pile of sparm, just running back and running forth and running to Sheer. And just the intensity was, was a tremendously moving thing. And then gradually, you know, as his Koach left, it didn't stop him from coming every day. So he had a helper. He had Rob Carroll, who was, was a tremendous helper. But you were able to see a person who came, and whether he was there learning or not, how much it was, he did it. He did it with intensity. When he was here, he was learning from the time he got here till the time he left. And at the same time, there were a lot of people who were afraid to approach him. He welcomed people to approach him. He was never too busy to answer a question in the learning. Not that many people came over, not that most people came over. Some people came over to establish a cashier. He was never too busy to discuss an issue, a personal issue, a hashkafic issue, a halachic issue. And he was always there for everybody. And it didn't stop his hasmada, but hasmada didn't stop the connection. And I think that was a very, very important thing. People years ago would have the opportunity to do that. You see that. People are going to say it. Then he was a giant in, in Midos in Menschlechite. He was very particular about that. And I was just reminded. We had a Simcha in, in our family. I think when my oldest do- my one of my daughters got married and Rav Lutton was at the wedding. And uh, there were older people at the wedding. As well. <coughs> I'll tell you it was Rav Pick and, and his wife were invited. A family 
personal reasons. And Mrs. Bick's mother, who at the time was in the mid-90s, she lived to 102, 103, she came, because my wife had known Etta, etc., etc. And she came to the wedding, and she's sitting at a table. And this is just typical of Lichtenstein. He came, he, have you ever seen him, ever you saw him at a wedding, you'd see the simch that he had with every with every chassan. He'd make a point of dancing, even to the last, a few, a few months ago. In his weakened state, he came to his last wedding that I remember, and he insisted on getting up and on dancing and being Mesameach, and it was something that was special for him. <coughs> the Yav he had any time there was a Mazel Tov in the yeshiva, he'd make a point of walking, even toward the end, from his Makom to where they were wishing Mazel Tov at the Chassan during Kriya Satora. Something to learn. He didn't know them all, but it didn't matter. You know, at the wedding, <coughs> people are dancing. I remember I noticed that he's sitting at a table while the dancing's going on, and he's talking to Mrs. Zablocki just to visit. There was something that, you know, that wasn't something that was on his mind necessarily, but it was on his mind. And the sensitivity that he had to people, and the sensitivity he had to what's right and to what's wrong, and be strong and direct in telling people what's right and what's wrong, was amazing. I remember something he told me, and I'm going to stop. There are many more people here. Um, he was very makbid, on very unfamily. Family was a big thing. He made a point of learning with all of his kids throughout their schooling. He would come and learn with them. And he one side, I think, that one of the biggest nachas he would have would be learning with his children, and he told his talmidim, make sure you do that. Make sure you're able to pass on that love. Now, Yusura of Lichtenstein for his lumbus, and Yusura of Lichtenstein for his greatness, and Yusura of Lichtenstein for his humility, and Yusura of Lichtenstein for his Abbas Torah, and Abbas B'nai Adam, there's a tremendous amount to learn from. We should be Zoka. Can you Zoka? Well, at the end of an era, you Zoka, the Sea Godel, even if it's in the shadows of his former self, you Zoka. That he's gone. I find it uh, <clears throat> positively bizarre to try to explain to people how Grevelkenstein was. You know, how would if you would take a uh, you know, the greatest sports star, star, whatever you can think of today, that is for, for some reason self-evident great, and then you have to somehow explain it to other people. It's obvious. I think one of the hardest things was <coughs> for people not to appreciate who Rebelkenstein he was. In this very shear room, here, we're sitting here, this is where Rebelkenstein gave shear for so many years, to, to packed room. <coughs> and the tension that was in this room, trust me, was palpable. <coughs> wasn't even in a shoe room. He walked into the supermarket, and there could be a buzz in the supermarket, and he would walk in, and all of a sudden, the volume would drop significantly. It was like, it was electric.
the way people looked at him, revered him, the Yira that people had of him to approach him. I think it was almost because he said he said this about himself. He said that he lives a life of Kedusha. But I think that certain people live a life of Kedusha to the point where they are actually living with Nayulufnim. And when you approach them, you feel like you're sort of maybe going in with Nayulufnim. And it's very frightening. It wasn't only when you go into his office, and anyone who remembers the pacing that would go on in front of his office door, even though there was no one in the room but Rebulkenstein. Why was the guy pacing? Not because he was waiting for a Wilkenstein, but because he was waiting to pull himself together before he could walk in. And there are many stories of people who would finally pull themselves together and they would walk in and experience complete erasure of their memory. I don't remember what they were supposed to ask for Wilkenstein, what question. They're very, very uh, frightened. No awe of him. And not that he demanded that from people, not at all. But people recognized that he was different. A person apart. And what Rabbi spoke about, the kfitzot, the, the jumping up. It wasn't just standing, it was jumping. I'm telling you, the, the speed from 1 to 100, from 0 to 100, in terms of, you know, in terms of speed, that he went from his chair to standing, was, was incredible. Like a gazelle. I saw it, it was standing right here. I remember those kids out. <coughs> <laughs> when Wilkinson came to the Shiva in 1971. So when he gave Shikoli, from what I, from what I heard, I wasn't here in 1971, but I heard that he started giving Shikoli for three hours. And he thought that would be certain, you know, completely reasonable, as much as the shim that he heard from Rabbi Salvechik were you know, easily within that range, if not more. And remember, he had a very hard time understanding why people couldn't handle three hours. He dialed it down to two and a half to two. He couldn't understand why people needed a break. The one to three break, you know, lunch may look, but you needed a break. He couldn't understand it. His farm completely alien to him. I remember speaking to him about jet lag. I once was on a flight with him, and I, uh, and I was just talking with him about, you know, and I sometimes feel jet lag. He says, he said to me, he said, I know some people feel that, you know, and have issues with it. But I don't know, I never had a problem with it. And it's true, what Bazak said. He would land here in Eretz Israel after a long journey in America, wherever he was in the world, and then he had the long journey here, and then he would just come directly from the airport and give sheer for hours. And anyone who's ever been on a journey, you know what it's like. You know how exhausted you are. He did it. It was just near 14 years ago, which, I don't know, maybe, maybe you feel that's like eternity. I don't know, 14 years ago, it was like yesterday at some level. Um, 
when my uh, when my first son was born, and the bris was here in the in the in the in the in the, uh, in the, uh, in the So we looked and seen. We asked him if he could name our son. So he was living at the time in Yushalayim, and uh, he uh, his bus was late, and everyone was waiting in the uh, in the Mavua for him. We couldn't start the bris until he was here, and uh, finally his he appeared. His bus had been late. After the bris, someone came over to me and said, I'm telling you, I saw something, I wouldn't have believed it. I said, what did you see? He said, Rav Lundin, the Shah Hayasham. Rav Lundin, he said, positively, this is 14 years ago. He was 69, really, 68, 69. He said he leaped off the bus, because he realized it was, it was late. He leaped off the bus, and in full gallop, ran from the Shah Hayasham, all the way up to the uh, to the basement to, to the basement church to move on to uphill and he said he just ran all out and then I remember Revolution when he appeared at the, the Mavoa not he didn't break out into a sweat there was no sweating no heaving completely calm and all this energy that he had this power this titan there was no walking there was running there was no Walking upstairs, just jumping, leaping—all of it he'd really devoted. I think, if I think of Rebbelchenstein, I think of him in certain, you know, key ways. First and foremost, as an Eved Hashem, he—he he was. If I, you want to talk about serving to God, working as a worker for God Hashem, he was a workaholic. And his avdus to Kodesh I remember him saying in this room. This was in 1986, saying, talking about Baitzav Hashem al Kemal Hadam. That the very first encounter between man and God was as it's evil. We're Kamandis, we're Mitsuvim. That's what we are. Kurdish Baruch was at the, at the epicenter of our lives, and everything revolves around him. And Rav Wilkenstein lived there. He was the Ebed Hashem par excellence, and he worked so hard, he was never satisfied, and he worked and he worked and he worked, <coughs> and he was extremely demanding of himself. I remember a number of years ago when he came to Whitmere on uh, Shabbaton, and um, I was able to be there for that Shabbat, and he was staying by my parents' house. Um, I have to tell you, I have very mixed feelings about that. You know, I was very happy to be at a Shabbaton, but we'll see that much. I was very nervous about him being in our house for, and, and spending Shabbos with him. I, I was very, very nervous. And um, I remember uh, speaking with Ramosha Lichtenstein about any particular needs for his followers. And uh, he said to me, just please be careful to make sure that he drinks at least just uh, some water, a cup of water before Shachris in the morning, Shachris morning. Because otherwise, if you don't do it, he's, he's not going to drink it. The doctor says he has to drink water. I mean, most people assume water is fine. Okay, maybe it's a whole deal or a coffee, tea with milk, sugar, you know, some cake. You know, you wouldn't drink water. People talk about the basketball games with Rabbi Lichtenstein, but I heard of a game that he played with uh, with Talmidim in Yerushalayim on Sukkot in the blazing hot sun, and. Right after the game, people ran to get a drink of water. So kiss and if you take a drink of water outside the sukkah, the Wilkinson would not take a drop until he was inside a sukkah. 
he worked so hard and was extremely demanding of himself. That energy he poured into his Avodah session. And particularly if I would mention one aspect of Avodah Hashem, when I think of Rebel Kunstein, I guess if I could give him you know, if a, a part of the details of Avodah Hashem, I would talk about his his Asmada. He was a Masmid. Masmid also, the Ishbeis Medrash. Plugging away. Plugging away. The fact that There's a name Shama at his Makam. It's appropriate, not just because this is a place that people, you know, this was his Makam in the base Spanish. It was his Makam. He was he was Kona at Makam so much. And he achieved great heights in Tamatara. His incredible talents and gifts that God gave him. He's a great Sadik because of the hard work that he put into in his Avodah Hashem. And yet, he was so humble. He never took for himself any, any pride or gaiva. He wasn't pretentious. <coughs> he always gave credit to other people. He always gave way to other people. He viewed himself equivalent to other people. I remember uh, reading a story about him that he was doing Spira and he was going to be a um, I don't know how this worked out I guess it wasn't Spira for the person for the Chassam and the Kala but he was going to be the way the person told the story is that he was going to be Masada Kedusha uh, at this uh, at this sphere, does it make any sense? But this was the way the story was told. He was going to be because of during this time period. I guess it was before Rosh Chodesh, or uh, it was it was some time before after Lag Baomer, some time when the Chassan held it was okay. And uh, Rav Lukensin went over to three boys in the base measures, three guys in the base measures, and he said, "I was wondering if I could ask Hatar Sundar because I was uncomfortable myself." not to shave during the entirety of the Spira from end to end and it wasn't Amanas Cain that I did this to appear in a uh, in a disheveled way uh, in front of other people to and the three boys like said Ravukans is coming to us as three Chachamim they ask a Shevaz Chacham to Mavatal the 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 Neder so he asked them in all seriousness, and they, they said the words of Hatar uh, Sadam, the Mutalach. Volkenstein shook his head to them, thanking them, total seriousness, and returned back to his Makam to learn. And in addition, and this is not a simple thing, he held, despite all his greatness and the way people looked at him and held him in great awe and revered him. He never had any, uh, you know, fancies of messy, you know, fancied himself as some Mashiach, messianism, nothing like that. He shied away from from being the center, from uh, from from taking positions unless it was absolutely necessary. He was very very careful about that.
I remember him sitting here at this table talking about learning from Rabbi Soloveitchik and we made reference to Rabbi Soloveitchik's learning. He said, The dirt beneath the rubber feet. I remember all of us being shocked at that statement. Couldn't believe that. But that's how he referred to himself. <coughs> and lastly, there's obviously much more to be said. But this is just on a personal note. Anyone who's Zohar to be a Talmud Rav Lichtenstein knows that Rav Lichtenstein was there for you. You really needed him for yourself, for your children. He was there for you. And today, in our home, he was crying. Myself, my wife, my eldest child, down to my seven-year-old. All of them felt the Wilkins is part of their lives. One of my daughters said to me that she was just very thankful for that cashier that she feels that Rebbe seen every day, every day, forms her as a part of her life and she thinks of his teachings and as a role model for her. I think it's a really tall order. And I said, I said in Shir this morning, you know, in case you blinked, an unbelievable transition just took place. And the responsibilities that are on our shoulders, and were on our shoulders up until now, have increased incredibly. Shrizoka. Mkhani Shem Shemani. Shrizoka to Mizakar And perpetuate and strengthen and deepen the sorrow to be born.
being that you can make sense of. <coughs> and then you meet someone like this person, and you, you have a he's so far beyond in every single aspect of the Vodas Hashem. And it's so difficult to try to understand how much he, how many different meetups he has. You feel, if I just took this encounter and multiplied it a billion times or ten billion times, or maybe I could understand what it is to have an encounter with a Kodesh Baruch Because you feel, that's it. You weren't scared of him. No one was scared of him. He was the softest soul you've ever met. But you just stood it off. As Rabbi Ryan said, you lost your breath. And remember, Talmud who left the yeshiva, went to a different yeshiva after living here for a while, went back to yeshiva in America. Asked him how how the Rabbanim in yeshiva, not not why it's a different yeshiva, how the Rabbanim in yeshiva. This grand, there's one Rebbe in particular he likes, and what does he like that Rebbe so much? He says because when he walks into the room, I lose my breath the same way I used to lose my breath with the Rebbe. I feel like I have to stop and. And I'm seeing something that takes my breath away. And to me, it was always that he was able to seamlessly connect traits that to us seem like they're opposite and they can't be fused and they can't be synthesized. And there's so many parts of him that gave us the confidence as Talmudim to say you could be both. And they're not really opposites. Like Ron mentioned before, we just lost one of the biggest, biggest Tamidim of our generation. Well, that's unconditional. We lost one of the Gedoli Hadar today. Rabbi Sharper said, you blinked and you missed it. But to people that really knew him, and as Rabbi Ron said, it wasn't about how big a Tamidim he was, or how great a thinker he was, or how erudite he was, or how scholarly he was. You'll never ever meet a bigger Ramidos. You'll never meet a sweeter person. You'll never meet a bigger tzaddik. You'll never meet someone. I know I'll never meet anyone like that. And normally those two don't go hand in hand. Normally someone makes their mark and defines their character in one or the other. The margins aren't totally off. You won't have a nice blend. Remember, Rebuchenstein once told us about Rashama Zalman. That if Shlomo Zalman warned the Shlomo Zalman, Ravar would say it in Yiddish, and whenever he would speak in Yiddish, it would be his way a little bit of bringing us back to Lithuania, making sure that as much as we were in Alon Shvot, still remind us that we were in a classic yeshiva, and the primacy of Talmud Torah. And he would be mocked to say things in Yiddish, the same way you heard it from his Rabbanim. Remember what we lost today also, you lost your link to Europe today. Ravar learned with the Rabbanim, he went through the Holocaust, He's from that generation. He learned from the Rabbanim of the pre-Holocaust era. <coughs> and slowly but surely, that Masara is, is dwindling. He said about Shlomo Zalman, if you want to be a Zalman, I've designed the Shains to Yid in Yushalayim. We always interpret, of course, for us. He would have been the nicest Jew in Yushalayim. Even if you want a Shlomo Zalman, he would have been the nicest person you ever met. And we'll be hearing that, and everyone's obviously looking at Ravar and say, you've just described yourself. You've just described it. That's an autobiographical statement. Those two don't normally go hand in hand. Another contrast that he displayed for us that just worked seamlessly. And that's what a Gadol really is. A Gadol is someone that's strong enough in their character and devout enough in their Vodas Hashem that they weave together pieces of personality that most people can't be, can't be fused. 
Everyone talks about Rabbi Lechenstein as an open-minded person. Very open-minded. Lenient. He was the biggest machmir you could ever meet in Halacha. If you went to about any question, you knew from the get-go what the answer would be. And if you didn't want to say Aser, he would, just because he was so sensitive to people, so he would say, ask someone else. I can't tell you. He wouldn't say Aser, but you couldn't, you couldn't tease a header out of him. And how could someone who's so staunch and inflexible to halacha also be so open-minded to new ideas and new formulas, secular knowledge, the world around him? And sometimes I think that's really the secret of the yeshiva. And Ravaran held that secret steadfast. Once you are so staunchly committed to Torah and Yerushalayim and Halacha. And about that, there's no question. Yerushalayim is completely, completely entrenched. Then you have the luxury to be open-minded about non-Halachic issues, about your interaction with the world. But you can't just be open-minded. You have to make sure the open-mindedness is built on a strong, uncompromising commitment to Torah, to Yerushalayim, to Halacha. And as Shriver mentioned before, it's intensity. And I remember, whenever I hear thunder, literally, a thunderstorm, and I make a shakafot v'asam the only sound that I've ever heard that's more thunderous than thunder was the Vluchnistin doing a shir when he when it reached its pitch. Or in this room, when he got up to give the chidushin that Rebazak spoke about today. Or... The Yom Kippur, when he used to scream, which was his, this was his part of the Yom Kippur. One of the Talmudian people, Chaim Seyman, put up a blog to try to share his thoughts with, he went here in the Middies. And he tried to be a little bit, not humorous, but put a more of a positive spin on it. And he said, he can only imagine he said, the standing ovation, Revolutionist, he was getting into my <laughs> The people he was so dedicated to, Abaye and Rava, Chayim, Rambam, running out to greet him and to give him Yashikola. And someone said, and they're probably all singing ours and all this. Which was, which was his and that, that roar when he had a moral outrage when something really bothered him he would roar like a lion and then there was a whole different part of him that just wouldn't speak above a whisper would say please would apologize profusely do you know how many times I turned around and, and even like was hit him because he'd sneak up on you and he wouldn't call you from afar because that would be rude He'd sneak on, and if you were having a conversation with someone, he'd wait for you to finish right behind you. And then, not knowing that he was there. And it shocked me. It, it didn't make sense to me. Who was this person that is so passionate and so thunderous and so intense and has a smother and stays up all night, has the more willpower, and is such a soft soul? And as, as we learn more about Robots, and we learned that all these opposites we're able to be incorporated to one personality, and that gives you the confidence and gave us the confidence. Because very often people top off because they fall into certain molds. This is who I am. 
and then they deprive themselves from the other side. Well, I'm an intense person, so I'm not going to be sweet and soft-spoken. Or, uh, I'm unfortunately committed to halacha, so I'm a machmer, I'm going to be close-minded. Or I'm open-minded, therefore I'll be making a halacha. And so many ways he was showing us, and that's that explosion of personality that's so large that it almost breaks all these stigmas. <coughs> I used to come home Friday night after his sikhot for an hour and 45 minutes, and my wife would ask me, What did Rav Lichtenstein speak about tonight? Well, said, tonight he told us that Moshe was a good person. <laughs> and my wife would say, Well, that took an hour and 45 minutes, I could say it in five seconds. But the level of analysis and subtlety and sophistication, you're take, like taking a diamond and turning it on an axis and saying, now let's look at the way the diamond shines now. But that shine can be broken down to three ways. And those three ways can be broken each way. It wasn't just gymnastics. Everything he said was teaching us to see things whole, to see them large, to see things sophisticated. Wait a second, sometimes people that are very sophisticated have no moral clarity because everything can be seen from many different standpoints. When it came to real issues, he had absolute moral clarity. I said before, I mean, he hated, he used to tell people, he hated people who were lazy. He hated, not people, but laziness. Today, my son saw me, I was at home today, having a hard day. So my son said, Abba, I think you should take a nap because he's very worried about me. And right right off the bat, I, I recoiled because Ravaran told us he never ever took a nap in the afternoon in his life because he felt that it was lazy. Whatever strength he had, he would use to the best of his capability. Ravaran um, spoke before about commitment as opposed to self, selfishness, being committed to the Jewish people. It's a whole different story. I'm, I'm, I'm not here today if not for hearing him in 1984, standing in front of the base matters, poor night, demanding that we not be selfish like Esther tended to be in the beginning and screaming. That changed my life. If that sikha doesn't take place and he doesn't compel me, I'm somewhere else right now. So how can you be someone that thinks about things from 13 different angles and sees things deeply, but also when it comes to real issues, black and white, moral issues, you see things very clearly. And you're very demanding of your students. And you convey that sense of right and wrong and boundaries. It's, I spoke before about the timelessness of Torah. Sitting with Rav Lichtenstein during a mishmar was like entering a time machine. Time stood still. You weren't in Alon Shavuot, you weren't in Israel, you were just back at Harsinai. And there was nothing in this world. The world around you was dark outside. There was nothing in this world but the Ketzels he was singing on a Sunday morning or a mishmar. There's nothing more important. When he was teaching the Rakhayim, the whole world revolved around that Rakhayim, and you were willing to see it as such because someone of such stature was living that Rakhayim as the center. There's nothing more important. But then the world mattered to him. And how do you combine that ability to stop the world on a dime and see Torah as the epicenter? And there's nothing but Torah but then still engage in every single aspect of the world around you and be able to address it articulately and cogently and with intelligence and with background and with... So I tried to mention before that Rav Lichtenstein demonstrated to us what Aptus is, what Eben Hashem is. And listening to him davening, listening to say, say hey Shmei Rabbah, listening to him scream Amen as the loudest person in the room. Not, not perfect, not 
exhibitionist, but just with deep, deep heartfelt kavanah, listening to his Birchas HaTorah. And it was just, it was, it was a, it was an experience just to come to the base medish to hear every word with such feeling and such abdus and such sense of amida with Hashem. But typically, people like that are not creative. You know, they're submissive. They submit to the system. Here's the most creative person, the most intelligent person, the most educated person, the wisest person. And when you see that person being an Ezra Hashem, you tell yourself, well, I could be it. That's who I want to be. It's not right to be an Ezra Hashem. It's not right to, to be submissive. It's not right not to think that, I'm, that I know everything. Because he does know everything, and still, he submits to the Ezra Hashem. I'll never see that in my life again. I'll never be able to see someone go through this world and you try to patch together elements and sometimes they conflict and you try to put them together but when you have a gadol like that and that's why I think <coughs> a gadol like that gives you a little sense of a Kodesh Baruch because that's what a Kodesh Baruch is we see the world is different and B'nai Shalom is Yotzer it's not black, it's not white, it's not day, it's not night. And a person of that stature getting a little glimpse of godless. So my Shriver said before, you was up with the being of Salvatrix last year. And I didn't get much out of this year because she was very ill and but something that left a deep imprint on my life and on my children. My twelve year old boy, they called me from school today. He was crying the whole day. They couldn't stop him from crying. I hardly knew him. A little later, what does he know from Uplifting? But because he was so committed to his Talmudim and so sweet nature and so selfless, he really became part of not just the Rebbe's and Talmudim, but of the community. The entire community is in a The entire community is crying. He's only lived here for 10, 12 years since he moved from Mishalayim. It goes back to what I said before. He won the biggest time of of our generation, he would definitely been and was the nicest, nicest Jew you would ever meet in your life. And that's a loss. It's a loss that we have to try to process, and everyone's still processing together. And as we said before, <coughs> in a situation where logically we're not interested in really being masculine the second on the other hand simply because uh, the past couple of years people in the yeshiva are not really able to get a, a clear picture of who the was we feel it's important uh, to be familiar before before the court to kind of uh, be able to process the, the Lamaya and Aspadim and, and the Kura tomorrow uh, and, and, and as a person who has a better understanding of what, what the, uh, the world lost. I think 80% of what I have to say was already said. And I, I knew that this would happen in the before. Nonetheless, I, I, I do want to give uh, my own personal view. And, and forgive me if, if, uh, if it's a little bit repetitious. I think that it's important for us to understand um, a broader uh, um, uh, aspect. Revolution seems that Saul's effect on the Jewish world. I don't think that his effect uh, was 
a direct effect. Yes, there were times, perhaps, he spoke in public, perhaps times that he would publish a, an article uh, that was read around the world, but his, his greater effect on the world was, was through his Torah, through his Svarim, through his articles, uh, both in Gemara and Hashkafa. And he affected the leaderships of the world. In other words, there were, there were Rabbanim leaders that would consult with him, and, and he had an effect and, and guided uh, uh, the, the, the modern Orthodox world as, as much as he could. His greatest effect on, 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 on the world and Jewish world was his Talmudim. And if you look around in communities and you look around in, 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 in the Chinuch world, um, you'll see the imprint on those individuals. Uh, his contribution as far as, as, far as his Derek Limud, um, I think was, was, was incredible. But if, if we were to speak, the people in this room were to speak on a personal level, I guess we could speak about more how we had an effect on these Talmidim, who ultimately had an effect on, on the world. And I remember before I started um, interviewing Talmidim for the first time, I asked him what he seen, what he looks for. Uh, and he said that one of the primary things he looks for, he doesn't look for what a person knows, because what does a person know? He looks for potential that they have to learn to grow, and the potential that they could have to impact the world. In other words, what are they going to pick up from yeshiva to, to affect the world? Um, the effect he had on the Talmudim, uh, obviously, uh, we, we speak about his methodology, um, but, but <coughs> yes, methodology is unique, and, and yes, it, 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 as, as you're all learning, it, it's incredibly powerful. It wasn't just a, a question of, of logic of, of, of a priori, but also the thoroughness in which he learned and the and complete commitment he had to the truth of the text. This is something that Rav Krumbein has uh, touched on <coughs> a little bit earlier. And the effect his brilliance had on his Talmudim, and I think Rav Schreiber and, and, and Rav Targan um, really hit, hit it on the head. As if you, uh, you know, heard your entire life about this legend in some area that you have expertise in, the biggest, I don't know, um, scientist or the, the greatest basketball player in the world, and then, and, and, and then, you know, you meet the person, and his brilliance is well, well beyond or in that area that, that, that you ever even understood. But then, when you get to really get to know him, you start to realize that as Rav Tarkin said, it was his personality and his midot that really, that really shone. So take, take you know, a person that you held as far as being the, the greatest Torah go- giant around now today, and, and realize that, yeah, but if I want to speak, to him, <coughs> speak about him, I would speak about I would speak about his midot, I would speak about his humility, I would speak about his, his respect for his fellow man. So often I saw, uh, you know, him speaking to older people as, as Rabbi Hines, uh, Spoke about my <coughs> mother-in-law, I love Sean. We'd always go up to her, we'd always schmooze with. And I was thinking to myself, like, you know, what Yiddish is, is my mother-in-law going to say to her? To him. Um, he, had, he had such a, a. It was a combination of. <coughs> it was humility and uh, personal humility and respect for, for absolutely everybody. And ultimately, what Stalin got from him was, was really a role model. Uh, to be inspired by all those things, by by his super hasmada, 
um, in anything. You, 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 you saw, you, you got a role model, and, and I could say that I came to Yeshiva Haritzion only because of Rebbe Lichtenstein, because my father said, that's where you're going to go. You know, you want to learn, learn from Rebbe Lichtenstein. Um, and my father early on realized that although I worshipped my father up until age 18, um, and there was nobody that, that, that came near as far as, as, as my respect, um, I remember very clearly my father realizing how I had, had uh, taken, uh, taken upon myself or, or, or accepted Rav Lichtenstein as, as, as a role model. I remember how proud it made my father feel. Uh, one last thing I want to mention was that I, I really came, you know, if I ask myself, if I ask why I'm coming to Gush, other than the fact that my father said I had to go to Gush, I would say I came because because I was interested in Torah Mada. I was interested in, in, in that synthesis and being able to um, engage in the world and embrace Torah at the same time. So I came for Torah Mada, but what I really found was something else completely that I hadn't come for. And what I found was an incredible in, in, in inspiration for Tveikus to Kaddish Baruch and for Torah. And, and that's what I really got in Yeshiva. And Torah Mada was nothing pale in comparison to 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 the lessons that I learned from 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 Rabbi Lachman of Hashem Zechat Tzadik Baruchah. I'll just end. On the one end, everything's been said. On the other end, we haven't even gotten started. Um, I just end with, with two quick stories that support things that have been said, and then a, a request of everybody in the room. Um, it was just in terms of the, the two opposite parts of Rolifenstein's his greatness and his humility coming together. If you were in his shear, so there was a moment, you know, he would call on you and you'd answer whatever. If you didn't know, if he had a question and you didn't know the answer, he would give you time to think. Which was obviously the worst thing in the world that could possibly happen because you couldn't think because it's Ravon Lichtenstein and your body temperature is going up from 110 to 120. But he never knew how intimidating he was, so he really thought he was giving you a chance to figure it out. And the whole time you had your head down, just praying that he would move on to the next guy because you weren't going to get it. But he had no idea. And again, that moment, him trying to give you a chance and being clueless as to the fact that you couldn't think, you couldn't remember what Masechta you were learning, you didn't know your own name, and he let it go on and on and on, only because he thought you would figure it out. Like in that moment. Second and last story. When I came back to Yeshiva, I had this idea that I would stop skipping the Kabbalah parts of the Ramban Torah. Because, the, you know, whatever the idea was, that was more than 40. Anyway, I wanted to ask him a few questions. And I wanted to ask him this question. I wanted to say to him, you know, whenever I learn Ramban Torah, whenever I get to Al-Pisot, or whatever, I skip it. And now, maybe now is it so. I didn't get to finish my question. I said, you know, when I learn Ramban Torah, whenever I get to the Sod, I skip it. He said, oh, me too. <laughs> and he said, he said, it's not for people like us. <laughs> and, so in that moment while I'm sitting there at the chair at his desk I'm thinking 
Who's us? <laughs> what do I have in common with you? But he, I don't think he was just being nice to me. That's how he thought. He actually thought that me and him... And so I thought it was funny, and I, in the moment I thought this is going to be a good story one day. But today makes me cry. He really thought that he and I shared... I don't know what. I know he didn't, but I think he, being the smartest person I ever I ever met, really thought that we did. And more than anything, I think about that today. You know, he I think he was wrong. But it didn't change the fact that that's how he saw me, and that's how he saw the other people in this room, and that's how he would have seen you if you had a chance to really interact with him. And so I want to end just with, with a plea, and that is... Everybody in this room has a claim to Rav Lechonstein's legacy. Because everybody in this room came to his yeshiva, and everybody in this room shared a base medish with him. And instead of spending tonight and tomorrow feeling like it's someplace else and it's somebody else, we're Talmidim of Yeshiva Haratzion. And when you go to the Leviah tomorrow, find a way to feel the loss. And not just through other people. But find a way to, things that you read, read stuff tonight, learn stuff, think about it. There are, tonight there'll be Ram and Vad. You'll talk about it. Find a way to connect to something and find a way to feel that loss. I'll end with the following. Everybody, I think, has like a trick they use in davening to try to get kavana. You know, when you're lost and you realize it's <coughs> Friday night and you're in the middle of the Lama Shinim. You, you, uh, you need something to try to help you focus. And so, at some point in my life, you know, I learned the Ramam, you're supposed to be Kilo Omed So, this idea I had of like imagining that I was in the Kodesh HaKadashim. I say this seriously. And it worked for a little while, but I, I, obviously I was never in the Kodesh HaKadashim. But over time, it changed. Over time, when I needed to really, really focus, and I closed my eyes, automatically, Rolunstein's table, and his Rambam, and his shots. Not him, not him at the table. Just the empty table, and the chair. And I used to think, Mano That's where he sat, and that's what I used to use, and that's what I used today at Mincha, to concentrate and to think of that spot as I'm not embarrassed to say it, it makes you see it like weird. <coughs> I thought it was one of the holiest places in the world. That exact spot in this marriage. So if everybody could just find some way to connect personally and to feel like they're part of the Avelos tomorrow, it's a moment and it's a day that your children will ask you about and God willing your grandchildren will ask you about. And we should all we should all be active part